I'm always blessed when I come to an Amen conference to meet with godly Christian physicians and dentists is inspiring. I think back over 15 or 16 years when a small group of us met at Cahutta Springs and we envisioned a group that would combine the medical missionary work, the preaching of the gospel, we began to think about how every physician's office, every dentist's office could be a center of influence for Christ, how physicians who see more people every week than most pastors do, how they could really take advantage of that opportunity for Jesus. And to sit here tonight and see that this organization has been growing rapidly, that it now has overseas branches to see the dedication on the staff just really thrills my heart, and I'm just thankful to God for each and every one of you. I've worked in television for so many years that it would be uncomfortable for me not to give a 30-second advertisement. <laughs> Some people have asked me, what are you doing in your retirement? And since you've asked, I think I should tell you. In 2010, my wife and I made a decision that we would retire, and that was going to be at the general conference session, which we did. As I was walking out on the platform to announce the retirement, Elder Wilson, who had just been elected as general conference president, put his arms around me and said, Mark, you're too young to do this. You're still only 65. That was 10 years ago. You can guess my age. And um, he said, I need you as an assistant. So for the last 10 years, I've served as one of Elder uh, Wilson's assistants. But my wife and I had already made the decision. We were talking about moving, and uh, we thought about moving to some of the great Adventist centers. But as we did that, we thought, if we move to an Adventist center, uh, I'll sit there in one of these large institutional churches. I may teach Sabbath school once a quarter if I'm fortunate. There's so much talent and ability. Why don't we move to an area where there are no Seventh-day Adventists? Why don't we move to that area? So we moved to an area called Haymarket. As far as we knew, there were no Seventh-day Adventists living in that community. Uh, it is an area where Disney Corporation bought 2,500 acres of property because they wanted to have a third Disney World. They had the one in California, they had one in Florida, and they had purchased this property, but it's a very wealthy area, and the wealthy horse owners said, nothing doing, Disney will change the total complexion of our environment, and as the result of that, they did not pass the necessary county permits for Disney to build. A large builder came in and said, we don't build houses, we build communities, and they built an amazing community with two golf courses, it's a gated community, a very upmarket, so you have a lot of government workers that live there, you have many physicians, attorneys, dentists that live there, and there were no Adventist church in that area. We began working there a number of years ago. There was a little Adventist church about uh, 20 minutes away with 30 members, but we've watched God work miracles there. Today we have a church of over 200, uh, 200 people attending. Um, when we started, our tithe was $44,000 a year. Last year it was $560,000. We are the second largest tithe-paying church in the, uh, in the state of Virginia. 
We've had seven to nine hundred non-Seventh-day Adventists walk through the doors of our church in the last three years. This year we baptized an orthopedic surgeon, we baptized a woman with a specialty in internal medicine, we baptized a psychiatrist this year. We have coming to our church people from the Justice Department of the United States government. Two attorneys have been coming to our health programs from the Justice Department. We have a lady now coming who works for the Defense Department coming to our church. It's amazing to see what God is doing and how God is breaking through that amazing community. Everything we do, we blend physical, mental, spiritual aspects of life. We have what we call the Living Hope School of Evangelism. Seven times a year, we have sessions from, from Sunday to Thursday for pastors, and we've had between two and three hundred pastors come to our training school. In addition to that, we run weekend programs for lay people on medical missionary work. We have classes on preaching, if you're a lay preacher, classes on how to give Bible studies, classes on how to conduct health ministry in a local church. My wife has schedules for our coming year. We fill up very quickly. We only take 25 students at a time. The wonderful thing is we don't charge anything for our classes. Uh, people come in, they pay for their meals, they pay for their lodging. But, you know, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. So at this point of our lives, we're committed to giving everything we know about outreach and evangelism to others. Our great goal is to share what God has shared with us. We've been so blessed by others that we want to spend our lives blessing others. We've now purchased a new pastoral retreat center where we can take pastors in, 12 at a time, and uh, they'll have opportunity for sauna, they'll have opportunity to walk. We have 10 acres of land. It's a brand new facility, seven minutes from our training school. So we're constantly reaching out in social media, in television, we have a national radio program. So retirement has been very, very good to us. We just <laughs> thank the Lord for the rest that we, give, we have when we come to the Amen Conference. We're going to pray and then we're going to study the Bible together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for Jesus. How thankful we are for Amen. And for every single member and for everything that this institution this organization stands for. I pray for every physician, pray for every dentist, every medical personnel that is here, that you would give us a vision of what you desire for us. No matter where we are in the spectrum of Christian life, no matter where we are in the journey of faith, we hear the call of the Spirit to go deeper. We hear the call of the Spirit to broaden our horizons. We hear the call of the Spirit to be in harmony with Christ, to know Him more deeply, to love Him more supremely, to experience His grace more fully. And we hear the call of the Spirit tonight to walk closer to You in the pathway of self-sacrificial service. So grant as we open Your Word the moving of the Spirit among us. In Christ's name, Amen. You no doubt are aware that we are meeting in a very historic city, St. Augustine. You may not be aware that St. Augustine lays claim to being the oldest city in America. It was settled by the Spaniards centuries ago. In fact, they just celebrated their 400th anniversary. 
St. Augustine is one of the leading tourist attractions in Florida. It has the beautiful St. Augustine Beach. Some of you wandered over there today and took a walk. It has the magnificent Crescent Beach with its white sand. But probably the most popular tourist attraction in St. Augustine is Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth. It dates back, at least the legend or the story of the Fountain of Youth dates back to the 16th century. Now there's no real strong evidence that Ponce de Leon found or discovered the Fountain of Youth, but it's been the story of legend through the years. Nathaniel Hawthorne, famous English writer, wrote about the Fountain of Youth right here in St. Augustine. Orson Welles wrote about it. The Disney Corporation got into the act, and they had a number of cartoons about the Fountain of Youth. Now, stories of the Fountains of Youth are not unique to St. Augustine. In fact, Herodotus, the great uh, historian, writes about the Fountain of Youth. Alexander the Great writes about the discovery of the Fountain of Youth. The Indians of the Caribbean talk about Bimini and discovering the Fountain of Youth there. A number of years ago, I visited the Fountain of Youth here in St. Augustine and actually took a drink of water. And people say to me, how do you have so much energy at 75 years old? I will not attribute it to the Fountain of Youth in St. Augustine. But here's something I've noticed, that although people drink from the Fountain of Youth here, their hair still grays. They still develop wrinkles on their face. They still age and get old and die. You see, the Fountain of Youth, although they've drunk of its waters through the years, their health has not improved very much. Now, millions of people worldwide pursue their own fountains of youth, whether it's a plant-based diet, a rigorous exercise regime, positive thinking, or some wonder cream to reduce wrinkles. They uh, want to, to, to lengthen their lives. Most human beings, if you ask them, will not say, I hope I get cancer, I hope I get heart disease, I hope I die at 52. Most human beings desire, there's something within us that desires life. The biblical principles of healthful living certainly will extend our lives. Some studies indicate as many as seven to ten years. But these principles do not guarantee us eternal life. That leads to one of the most important questions of all, and it's this. Is there a fountain of eternal youth that satisfies our inner needs for time and eternity. Deep within our hearts, we long for a remedy from sickness, suffering, and sorrow. Deep within our hearts, we long for a remedy for disease, disaster, and death. So come with me tonight on a fascinating journey to discover the fountain of eternal youth, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. In our Bible study tonight, we'll not jump all over the Bible, although we will use some references from throughout Scripture. And I hope you've brought the Bible with you tonight, because we're going to spend some time in Colossians chapter 1. 
The book of Colossians is one of Paul's prison epistles, along with Ephesians and Philippians. Paul was likely born in around 5 AD. He was imprisoned in in Rome, from where he wrote Colossians, in about 61 AD, maybe 62. So picture Paul in his mid-50s, about 55, when he writes the book of Colossians. Now it's helpful to understand the background of the book of Colossians so that we can fully understand the text that we're going to study. Colossians was in the Lycus Valley. It was one of three prominent towns in the Lycus Valley in Turkey. It was along with Hierapolis and Laodicea. These were the three key towns. Hierapolis was known for its warm springs, and tourists came to bathe in that warm mineral water springs there, the springs that bubbled up from beneath the ground. Laodicea was known for its ISAV. It had a medical university in the first century at Laodicea. It also was known for its black wool on the backs of its sheeps, uh, its sheep, and it was also known as a monetary center. Banking came, developed largely out of Laodicea in the ancient world. In fact, Laodicea was so rich, it was one of these three cities, Colossia and Laodicea and Hierapolis. Laodicea was so rich that when an earthquake destroyed it in 62 AD, and Rome wanted to rebuild it, Laodicea said, forget it, we've got our own money, we can rebuild our own city. Now, Colossia was known for its fertile ground. It was very fertile soil. When you have a volcanic area, you have these volcanic eruptions, and often it produces very, very fertile soil. So, Colossia was known for the fertile soil, known for its crops, its growth of uh, agriculture. It was also noted for its sheep and its herds. And it was a very wealthy city about in the 4th century uh, B.C., but as you come to the first century, it's really dwindled. It's, it's not much of a force at all. It's quite a weak city. Now, we don't have any evidence that Paul ever visited Colossia. The center of Christianity in those years was in Ephesus. And from Ephesus, missionaries were sent out to plant churches. And so missionaries would have been sent to Colossia, to Hierapolis, and to Laodicea. Churches were built there, and they began to thrive. As they did, though, Paul got word from the pastor of the church at Ephesus, uh, rather the church at Colossia, Epaphras, he got word that heresy had slipped into the church, that as the first generations of Christians tended to die off, that there were those that came into the church at Colossia. They were... teaching some very strange ideas. You see, the church at Colossia had an interface of Jews, Gentiles, of pagans. It was a very eclectic society. And an unorthodox cult developed what we call syncretism, where there was a blend of paganism, a blend of Christianity, and a blend of Judaism. There was something known as the angel cult, And the angel cult believed that the so-called archangel Michael 
caused a healing spring to spring up in, from a gushing fissure in earth. And this was their fountain of youth. So one of the things that Paul is addressing in Colossians chapter 1 is where do you find the source of eternal life? Where is that found? And also he's dealing with the idea of the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is supreme. That Christ stands far above all the angels because they have this angelic cult that they're worshipping. Now you can divide Colossians, the book of Colossians, the four chapters, into two parts. The title of Colossians, if I were titling it, would be the supremacy of Christ. The first two chapters are the person of Christ. The last two chapters are the power of Christ. So the title of, of Colossians is what, everybody? The supremacy of, of Christ. The first two chapters are the person of Christ. The last two chapters are the power of Christ. Now it's with that background that we come to Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians is written to establish the supremacy of Christ above every angelic being. It's written to establish the supremacy of Christ and what he provides. So chapter 1 largely deals with who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do in the life of the believer. Paul starts out in the first few verses of Colossians 1 by talking about his own credentials that he's been called by Christ. Then he proceeds through the middle of the chapter by talking about the fact that he's praying for the church at Colossia. It's a great study of intercessory prayer. Our eyes drop down to verse 13. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 1 and we're looking there at verse 13. Before we ever come to Christ in you, the hope of glory, who is this Christ that longs to dwell in our hearts as the hope of glory? Who is he? Paul sets that out in the, from verse 13 down to verse 24. And it's those verses we need to take a look at. He says... Verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. The Father delivers us from the power of darkness. He translates us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We pause there at verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, for the forgiveness of sins. Here Paul sets out the magnificence of Christ. He is the self-sacrificing redeemer. He is our loving Lord. He has forgiven us, pardoned us, justified us, sanctified us, glorified us, all in the cross of Calvary. It is ours to grasp the reality of what he has done through faith. He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Paul sets out the reality of who Jesus is early in the book of Colossians. On the cross, he himself took our guilt. On the cross, he himself took our shame. On the cross, he himself took the condemnation of our sin. On the cross, he experienced hell itself for us. Seventh-day Adventists understand something uniquely about the cross. Because we understand that the, that the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not what? Anything. So if Christ 
was to experience the powers of hell. And if he was to experience the second death for us, did he experience it after he died or before he died? He must experience it before he died because the dead know not what? Anything. So if the dead don't know anything, and if Jesus experienced the second death for us, if he experienced hell for us, he must have experienced that hanging there on the cross with the weight, guilt, and shame of sin upon him. What then is hell? Hell is the absolute horror and agony of having your heart wrenched apart from God and the conscious awareness that you're separated from God forever. That is the agony of hell. Did Jesus go through physical suffering on the cross? Certainly. But his mental agony was greater because he who existed with the Father from eternity, he who never had a beginning, he who through the ceaseless ages had an intimate relationship with the Father, hung on Calvary's cross with nails through his hands, with blood running down his wrists, with a crown of thorns on upon his head, shaking in horror of physical pain, but with a mental anguish and agony far greater. His heart was ripped apart from God. And he bore the guilt, shame, and condemnation of sin and made a mental choice that he was willing to go into the grave forever and be separated from the heart of God for you and for me. The cross was for us. His shed blood was for us. His death was for us. His redemption is for us. And in simplest terms, too plain to be misunderstood, there in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, in whom, that is in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Now, did you notice that text in Colossians 1? Sometimes it's helpful to see what a text does not say as well as what a text does say. Paul says there in Colossians 1, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood. It doesn't say we hope to have redemption through his blood. It doesn't say we pray that we'll have redemption through his blood. It doesn't say we uh, may have redemption through his blood. It says we have redemption through his blood and that makes all the difference. When you walk into your office this coming week and you know that by the grace of God you have redemption through the blood of Christ. You are redeemed through Jesus. You are a son and daughter of God that the grace that fills your hearts overflows to your patience. There's a new sparkle in your eyes. There's a new smile on your face because you walk into that office with the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now the scripture continues to describe the magnificence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ in, in Colossians chapter 1. First, he is our loving redeemer. He's our self-sacrificing Lord. But Paul, Paul goes on, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, there are some people that misunderstand the expression, the firstborn. 
In the Greek language, the word firstborn is prototokos. It does not mean firstborn in the sense of time. It's rather firstborn in the sense of privilege. In other words, what this verse is stating is that just as Jesus had the firstborn. Now, incidentally, that word also has the, has the overtones of ownership or possession. The firstborn in ancient Israel had the ownership or the inheritance of the estate of the father. So this text points out that Jesus has the inheritance. He's inherited glory. Through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, he has become the possessor and the owner of eternity. And when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we become the possessor of eternity because the inheritance that the Father gave to him is indeed ours. He is the firstborn in the sense of privilege, the firstborn in the sense of right. But notice what it says. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, there are some people that have the idea that Jesus, accept, Jesus existed in the bosom of the Father and in some place in eternity past, he really didn't exist as a separate, distinct being, but came forth as some kind of spontaneous generation from the Father. This Bible passage helps us to understand that, that nothing could be further from the truth. The scripture says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Ellen White sets the record straight. Review and Herald, April 5, 1906. If you are talking to people that are anti-Trinitarian people, you need this reference. Here it is. If you're talking to people that believe that Jesus in some way is some kind of a created being, Ellen White, Review and Herald, April 5, 1906. Very simple. The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity, a distinct person, yet one with the Father. Let's suppose that I'm trying to nail the base of this pulpit to the top of the pulpit, and I have a nail here, and I got a hammer. How many times do I have to swing at it, do you think, to drive that nail through this board to nail it to the bottom of this pulpit? How many times do I got to swing the hammer? How many times? How many times do you think? Three. Five. How many times? How hard do you swing it? How hard I swing it? No, it depends whether I hit it or not. I can swing it a hundred times. If I miss that thing, it's not going in, right? You don't need a lot of statements. All you need is this one. This hits the nail on the head. The Lord Jesus, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity, a distinct person, yet one with the Father. I'll give you one more, in case the nail didn't go all the way in. Desire of Ages, page 19. From the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father. He was the image of God, the image of his greatness and majesty, the outshining of his glory. Now listen to me. Jesus qualifies as our Redeemer because of his eternal existence. A being who is not eternal, who has not existed from the ceaseless ages of eternity, cannot provide what he himself does not possess. 
eternal life. So if, if Jesus is not eternal, if he came forth from the Father at some point, he cannot give to you and to me what he does not possess himself. But if in Christ there is life, unborrowed and underived, if in Christ there is eternal life, if indeed Paul sets him forth as the living Christ from the ceaseless ages of eternity, then his offer of eternal life is real. We proceed now to verse 16. In verse 14, he is the self-sacrificing Savior, the one who gives us redemption, the one who has justified us by his blood. In verse 15, he is the eternal Christ, the image of the invisible God. In verse 16, he is the creator. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things exist. Jesus is our all-powerful creator. He's the one who has created all things, and in him all things exist. Jesus sustains all life. Every breath that you and I take is because of the cross of Calvary. If we do not have the cross, then the human race descends upon itself in this world of rebellion and the human race destroys itself. It's because Christ our creator and Christ our redeemer sacrificed his life on Calvary's cross that we live. Every breath we take is because of Christ. Every heartbeat in the, in the breast of saint or sinner is because of Christ. So what is Paul doing in Colossians 1, as he leads up to that magnificent statement, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is describing who this Christ is that wants to dwell in you. He is the Christ that has lived from all eternity. He is the Christ who is your redeemer. He is the Christ who is your all-powerful creator. He created us. He redeemed us. If he had not created us, we would not exist in the first place. And had he not put the plan of salvation into practice when humanity fell through selfishness and greed, we'd have gone on a rampage of destruction and destroyed all life on planet and rebellion. He is our loving Savior. He's our eternal Lord. He's our all-powerful Creator. That's what Paul's talking about now, verse 18. And he is the head of the church, the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in all things he may have preeminence. Notice what it says. He is the head of the church. The church at Colossia was facing divisions. It was facing heretical trends. It was facing false teachings. It was facing doctrinal controversy. But the Apostle Paul reminded them, and it's important for us to remind ourselves, that Christ is the head of the church. He will see the church through. He holds the church in his hands. He sustains the church. He guides the church. And he, the church will ultimately fulfill its destiny in Christ. Amen. I have seen numerous occasions when it looked as if the church were crushed and defeated. I remember a time when I was ministerial secretary of the Trans-European Division. 
and I walked into our office in St. Albans, had a little time, so I picked up the London newspaper, the London Times. As I was flipping through it, an article caught my attention. These were the days of communism. These were the days of totalitarian regimes in Eastern Europe. And as I looked at the little article in the paper, it said, Seventh-day Adventist Church in Bucharest, Romania, crushed, destroyed. The story is this. Nicolae Ceausescu, the dictator of Romania at the time, wanted to so-called build a new piece of, of a new highway through a certain section of Bucharest. And so he came to the Adventists, sent some of his people to them, and he said, we want to build a new highway here, and we're going to need your property and need your church, so we're going to destroy it. And our Adventists said, well, look, we want to be loyal to the government as far as we're able to do that, but just compensate us for the property. He said, nothing doing. We're not compensating you for anything. We're destroying the church. Our Adventists went into the church that Sabbath and met there, and they slept there Saturday night. They slept there Sunday. The cranes and wrecking balls came on a Tuesday or Wednesday in the middle of the week, and they began approaching that church our people prayed and prayed. Finally, they sent the militia in, dragged our members out of the church, destroyed the church. It was broken glass and crushed concrete and twisted metal and steel. The next Sabbath, our believers came to that very spot and sang hymns and worshiped there. I came to Romania on a, on a number of occasions, but I was visiting Bucharest in 2000 about 11 years after this event. And I had remembered the story that I read in the London Times about 11 years before. And I said to the conference union president at the time, Adrian Bucanano, I said, Adrian, look, um, I want to talk to some of those people that were in the church when they were dragged out. I want to I meet them. I want to pray with them because I want to find out the rest of that story. He smiled and he said, let me take you to their church. And we began to drive. By now, communism had fallen a decade before. And we drove onto a street and he said, you know the name of this street, Pastor Mark? I said, no, it's Victory Street. He said, you see that building over there? I said, that's a magnificent building. He said, it's one of the nicest churches we have in all Romania. It's the church of these people. Communism had fallen. The dictator was dead with a bullet in his head, but the Adventists were worshiping in one of the nicest buildings in Victory Street. God has a way to hold his church in his hand. The church may go through valleys of darkness. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains. While the scripture, why Ellen White says the sinners in Zion are what? Shifted, shaken out. So here, the, who is the Christ that dwells within us? He is the redeemer of Calvary's cross that justifies us with his blood, that sanctifies us through his power. Who is this Christ? He is the eternal Christ that never had a beginning or never had an ending. Who is this Christ that dwells within us? He is the Christ who is the creator of all. He is the Christ that gives us every breath. Who is this Christ that dwells in us? He is the Christ that is the Lord of the church. We need not fear the future of the church. 
because Christ holds it in his hands. With that background, with that background, we go to Colossians chapter 1. And here, the Apostle Paul comes down and he uses that beautiful expression. In Colossians 1 verse 19, For it pleased the Father that all the fullness, that in Him all the fullness should dwell. What does it mean, all the fullness? All the fullness of the Godhead. Everything that God is dwelt in Christ. And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, to Him. Whether they're things on earth or things in heaven. Having made peace with them through the blood of His cross. We let our eyes drop down to verse 24 and onward. We come to the very heart of the passage. Everything that Paul has written up until this time, he has written to come to this very, very point. Philippians, rather, Colossians 1, 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you all and fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body and for his church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now verse 27. The mystery, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that's been hidden from the ages. What is Paul talking about? What is the mystery that was hidden from the ages? It is the revelation of God's love on the cross. The cross answers Satan's charges that God is unfair and God is unjust. In the light of the controversy between good and evil, God silences the universe on the cross. And the mystery hidden through the ages is revealed on Calvary's cross of the self-sacrificing love of God, of a Christ that was willing to go into the tomb and never come out for you and me. And all the universe cries and sings, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and blessing and honor and riches forever and ever and ever. But Paul goes on to say in verse 27, that that mystery that was revealed on the cross is to be revealed now in every life before the universe in a corporate body of believers known as the church. And that's what Paul's revelation is about in verse 27. To them, God willed. It's God's purpose. It's God's desire. It's God's intent. It's God's eternal revelation. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the revelation of Christ in you as you walk into your offices on Monday and Tuesday of this week, that is the mystery kept hidden from the ages for your patients because they've never seen many of them, the self-sacrificing love of Christ. They've seen 
maybe physicians in secular environments who give them three and a half minutes of time and are interested only in the bottom line, which is money and finance. But here they come in contact with a godly physician, a godly dentist. Here they see somebody whose heart is interested in them, somebody who cares for them, not only physically, but mentally and spiritually. Somebody who gets their arms around them, somebody that prays for them, somebody that writes out a Bible text for them, and the revelation of the glory of God is manifest in you. And Jesus longs to light this world with his glory. Let me, let's study some of these passages. You see, God has not yet had an entire generation of believers who grasped the magnificence of his love by faith and allowed his glory to shine through their lives. But God's plan will be accomplished. God's purposes will be fulfilled. God's character will be revealed one day before a waiting world and a watching universe. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. Revelation 18 and verse 1. Now notice Revelation 18.1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory. One day the angelic glory of God, the brightness of God's glory, his character will shine to the world. Now it's interesting, you see that word? And after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. The word for authority there, if you have the King James Version, it probably doesn't say authority. What does it say? Power. Having great power. The, the, the word here actually, some think it's dunamis, it's actually not dunamis here. It's very interesting word. The word in the Greek language is exousia. Exousia is authority, but it's more than authority. Exousia is power, but it's more than power. There are some Greek words that are very hard to translate into English. And this word, exousia, has to do with triumphing over the principalities and powers of hell. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out with all authority. You read that in the Gospel of Matthew. He sent them out with all authority. He sent them out with authority over demons. He sent them out with authority over sickness. He sent them out with authority over disease. So here scripture says, these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great authority. In other words, the victory of Christ on the cross over the principalities and powers of hell is manifest through God's people as they reveal his love to the ends of the earth. The living Christ revealed in and through his people will illuminate this world with his glory, his character. Revealing his love in our personal lives reveals his goodness. You remember when Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory? Look at Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. And what does the Lord say to Moses? What does God say to Moses? You know it well. Exodus chapter 33, and you're looking there at verse 18. The scripture says, Moses asked God, Exodus 33, verse 18, and he said, please show me your glory. Verse 19, then he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So the glory of God is the goodness of God. The glory of God is the character of God. Ellen White puts it this way 
as she talks about our revelation of God's love in our personal lives to the world. In other words, understanding the depth of his love, uh, comprehending the immensity of his sacrifice on the cross, and appreciating more fully what he... Calvary. Calvary. That leads us to live faith-filled lives. Now, here's what Ellen White says. You'll find it in the General Conference Daily Bulletin, January 28, 1893. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. So it's the message of Christ's righteousness in our lives, living lives of self-sacrificial love, revealing his glory that closes the work. You see, and that's the very opposite of Babylon. The message of the cross is all about the glory of Christ. Babylon and false religion speak of the glory of man. Genuine Christianity speaks about the glory of Christ. Babylon and all false religions speak about my reputation, my honor. Genuine Christianity speaks about Christ's reputation and Christ's honor. Babylon and all false religions speak of human works. They talk about what I've done. Genuine Christianity speaks about what Christ has done. Babylon and all false religions speak of what I'm doing for Christ. Genuine Christianity speaks of what Christ has done for me. Babylon and all false religion are based on a distortion of biblical truth and found in human opinion. Genuine Christianity is based on truth as it is in Jesus, anchored in God's word. And it's, it is in gratitude for all Christ has done for us that motivates our behavior and leads us to live lives entirely committed to him. You see, the last message to be proclaimed to the world is not fear us, it's fear God and give what? Glory to him. There's no glory in our righteousness, no glory in our goodness, no glory inherent in us, no glory in our achievements, education or attainments. It is all in him and because of him and through him. It is his glory that shines through us, not our glory shining for him. That's a key principle. It is not his glory, it, it is his glory that shines through us, not our glory shining for him. Ellen White states it plainly in Testimonies to Ministers, page 456. What is righteousness by faith? It is the work of laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man what it's impossible for him to do for himself. When our glory is laid in the dust and all we desire is Christ's glory, when we're not concerned about our reputation, but we're concerned about his we're not concerned about our honor, we're concerned about his. We're not concerned about our prestige, we're concerned about representing him right before the universe. There are some amazing promises in the Bible about God raising up a group of men and women that love Jesus more than they actually love themselves. Their only desire is to please him. Their only goal is to please him. And one day, in the not too dear, near distant future, God is going to have a group of men and women. God is going to have a group of boys and girls that are so passionate about him, that are so charmed by his love, so amazed by his grace, so enthralled by their communion with him, so shut in with his presence, 
so in love with him that Christ dwells through his Holy Spirit in their lives. And the word of God that they've saturated their minds with becomes incarnate. It becomes part of their brain cells. It becomes bone of their bone and tissue of their tissue. And the word of God flows through their very veins. And they've drunk of the fountain of life and they've been satisfied. They've eaten of the bread of life and been satisfied. He is the rose of Sharon that perfumes their life. He is the bright and morning star that, that lights up the light of their life. He is the good shepherd that has found them. He is the, the one who is their solid foundation. And one day, according to Habakkuk chapter 2, look there at Habakkuk chapter 2, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Habakkuk, the second chapter, these promises in Scripture encourage our hearts. At times when we say, God, how are you ever going to get the job done? By faith we cling to the promises of God and believe that what he has promised, he indeed will accomplish. What he, his word says, he indeed will do. Habakkuk, the second chapter, the 14th verse. The prophet Habakkuk says this. Can you read it with me please? Habakkuk 2 verse 14. Reading together. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Do you believe that tonight? Amen. Is grace greater than sin? Amen. Will God's love triumph over hatred? Amen. Where sin doth abound, will grace much more abound? Amen. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. This work will not go out by some, like some candle in the breeze where the light of truth is blown out and there's only darkness. The light of God's truth will grow brighter and brighter and brighter. God's word will triumph. God's plan will triumph. God's people will triumph. God's purposes will triumph. The church will rise to its destiny. Notice Numbers 14 verse 21. I'd like you to look at the passage. And then I want to read a divine commentary on this passage that's really amazing. Numbers 14, verse 21. Here, we're looking at verse 20 and 21 of Numbers 14. Then I want you to see the divine last day commentary on this. Numbers 14, 20 and 21. When the Lord's, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Now verse 21. But truly as I live, that's a solemn oath, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Amen. Now here is Ellen White's comment on that. She's commenting on this passage, but as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now there are some people that are saying, will the Adventist church break up? Will it splinter? Will God call out another movement? And they have all these kind of strange ideas. But notice what Ellen White's comment on Numbers 14, 21, where it says, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And she's commenting on this expression, but as truly as I live, the oath of, the Lord, of God must be fulfilled. For not one good thing of all the Lord has spoken can fail. Praise God. 
thanks to the name of the Lord, the full accomplishment of every letter of this oath is like the eternal existence of him who uttered it, an absolute, unfailing certainty. And in the certainty that all this must be brought to pass, there is enough to wake earth and heaven to song. What do you say? It's found in a little pamphlet I picked up called Glory of God in the Earth, and it's on page three. In other words, God is committed. The promises of God are sure. God is going to raise up a generation of men and women who only want what he wants, who only desire what he desires, who long for the end of sin and suffering as he longs for it. They've drunk at the fountain of eternal life, not at Ponce de Leon's fountain, and they're fully satisfied. The world's folly has lost its hold on them. The world's spell has been broken. The world's delusions have been shattered. Christ is their all in all. His glory shines with a radiance from their lives. The glory of self-sacrificing love illuminates through them. The riches of the glory of his grace flows out through them to a desperate, dying world. When I was a student at Atlantic Union College. I remember well Friday nights. I had just become a Seventh-day Adventist when I was 17 years old, my senior year in high school. I was baptized in March of 1963. I was at AUC the following school year. I was new. I was a theology student, but had difficulty finding the books of the Bible. I thought Psalms was palms. <laughs> I thought it was Daniel. I thought it was David in the lion's den. But when I preached about David in the lion's den, I preached it so enthusiastically, people thought he was there. <laughs> I remember one of my friends said, turn to the book of Hezekiah. Man, I was looking for that thing. I couldn't find Hezekiah. It took me about 20 minutes before I figured it wasn't in the Bible. But I remember Friday nights. We'd go to Vespers on Friday night, and after Vespers on Friday nights, Dean Paul Riley would gather a group of students. And he'd take us from the dorm. There were probably 10 or 15 of us. And you know those beautiful October evenings in New England. Crisp air, cool. We walked out on the football field. The stars were twinkling in the sky. We gather around as a group of young men from the dorm. We talked about our highs and lows of the week. We talked about our joys and sorrows. We opened our hearts and talked about our ambitions. And then we began to sing. Sang the same song, only one song. Sang the same song every Friday night. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. Second verse, I love thee because thou hast first loved me. Can you just repeat that verse with me as a prayer? I love thee because thou hast first loved me and hast purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing 
the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. That song was written by William Featherstone. William Featherstone was 16 years old when he wrote that song. And God gave him a converted heart. And there, one day he sat down and wrote his tribute to Christ. As we stand to sing tonight, would you sing this with me as a prayer? Sing with this with me as a prayer of commitment. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Go with the absolute assurance that the cross is for you. His redemption is for you. His grace is for you. His pardon is for you. His power is for you. As you go from this place, go with a heart overflowing with that grace, charmed by his love. As you go from this place, go to light your office with the glory of God. May your office be an arena of God's grace, a place where true ministry occurs, a place where hearts are touched, a place where lives are changed. May your eyes be the eyes of Christ to see the hurt and heartache in others. May your ears be the ears of Christ to hear their cries of woe. May your hands be the hands of Christ to minister them in Jesus' name. May your heart be the heart of Christ to love them as he loves them. May your mind be the mind of Christ to know how to reach them for him. As you go, go with the assurance that you are God's ambassador with Christ in you of his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you created us. Life is no cosmic accident. It's no happenstance that we're here in this time, in this place, in this generation. It's no accident that we weren't born a hundred years ago or three hundred years ago. You brought us into existence now for a purpose, to fulfill a destiny. Father, we thank you that the God that created us is the God that holds us in his hands. We thank you for the Christ that redeemed us. We thank you that Calvary's grace is for us. That justified by your grace, sanctified by your grace, glorified by your grace, we can leave this place to reveal that glory to others. Father, our prayer is that Jesus, if ever we loved you, we love you now. Send us from this place to be a light in this dark world, to reveal your glory. May the promises of Scripture, with the knowledge of God filling the earth and the glory of God filling the earth, be fulfilled in this generation. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.